Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2, Episode 49. Sometimes there's more truth in legend than in history, and sometimes there's more salt in ham than in turkey. Where we will be looking at Chapters 102 and 103 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of mythical divergence. All right, so the challenge now is, can we remember why we chose that like a month and a half ago, you know, before we lost a whole lot of time to COVID? I think so. I remembered why as soon as I started reading. Okay, good for you. Also, momentous occasion. I believe this officially means that we have more episodes specifically dedicated to the wise man's fear than we did for the entirety of The Name of the Wind. And we're only, what, like two-thirds of the way through the book? Ish. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of mileage still to go. Yeah, we haven't even touched on his time in the Adem. Anyway, why don't we go ahead and start with our explanation? As per usual, each week, or every other week, or whenever we are healthy enough to do a recording, we will be examining a section of the wise man's fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. Then we will share a recommended thing of the week. Nope. First, we will share a phronemos of the week, except maybe nope. (laughs) And then we will share a recommended thing of the week and wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let us get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Secondly, if you've made it this far, I'm hoping that you understand there will be spoilers. Also, a word to our community and everyone else, please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. All right. So let's talk a little bit about our theme here. So we chose mythical divergence. Specifically, we're talking about the ways that events have a way of becoming distorted over time. And our understanding gets turned into something that maybe has a passing resemblance to the actual events, but really all sorts of alterations get made either for the sake of audience or because it's a better narrative or any number of other considerations. Including for the sake of brevity. Not to mention, sometimes people just forget things. Like that's the the peril of the oral tradition. Sometimes people just leave things out. Or get things wrong. No, that never happens. I never get things wrong. No, nor do you ever conflate two stories. I've never done that. Ever, he said sarcastically. And in this particular passage, we get some really cool examples of that mythical divergence, specifically as it pertains to the story of the theft of the moon that we first saw in Hespa's story of Jax and then Thalurian's story about the war between the knowers and the shapers. So we'll touch on that once we actually get to that portion here, but I just wanted to sort of prime you all for that bit of discussion. So we start off with chapter 102, The Ever-Moving Moon. 
And it marks the first time that Quoth has actually seen the moon in the sky over the Fey Realm. He says he was surprised to see the pale curve of the moon peering through the trees above them. And this is the first indication that he's had of the passage of time. Up to this point, everything has been pretty static. Now, do you think that that happened because they went nightwards and came back? Or do you think that the passage of time does march forward? It's just obscured by the way that time works in the Fey. I think it does move forward. I think it just doesn't necessarily move forward at the velocity that Kvoth is used to. Or at a consistent velocity, for that matter. And even though it's only a bare sliver in the sky, he says he's 100% certain that it's the same moon as it is in the mortal realm, even though the stars are different. What it kind of feels like to me is that Based on how Felurian explains things, which again, let's be real, Felurian is also an unreliable narrator. But based on her explanation, it seems like it basically has an inverse phase with how it is in the mortal realm. So when it's waxing in the mortal world, it's waning in the Fey realm and vice versa. From my understanding, though, it barely shows up. It has a very bare tether to the Fey Realms. So it doesn't show up full ever. It doesn't show up more than just the barest of crescents. It's possible that I misunderstood or conflated. It's been known to happen. Or that we interpret things differently. That could also be. And one of the things that Felurian does confirm is that it is the same moon between the Fey Realm and the mortal world. That those two worlds have sort of a weird shared custody. Of course, this prompts both to do all sorts of, but how is this possible? And this is where she nicknames him the Little Owl. How? How? Who? Who? Which is really funny because it just ties in how childish she views Quoth as being. For a couple of reasons, this is funny to me. Quoth views her as being quite childish, quite innocent, at least mentally. And she views him the same because they don't have a shared history, a shared understanding of how the world works. Because each of their respective worlds work differently. And so what they're seeing as kind of this childlike innocence is more naivete regarding the specifics they grew up with respectively. Yeah, one of the things that I note here is that neither one of them are actually especially good teachers. The best teachers are not necessarily the smartest people or the ones who know the most. The best teachers are the ones who are able to meet their students where they are and encourage them to learn. And neither Quoth nor Felurian are especially good at putting themselves at their students' level and accepting it. Felurian is perpetually bemused by the things that Quoth doesn't know. And she's always kind of mocking and belittling him for that. You know, that's not a good teacher relationship right there. I can't think of any time being made to feel stupid or ignorant by a teacher has made me a better student. 
When you started talking about how the best teachers meet their students where they are, it reminds me of how you refer to your guitar teacher. You are distinctly uninterested in music theory, or at least you have been historically. You just want to learn how to play songs. It's not about how the songs work. It's about how you can make them come out of the guitar. Yeah. And my teacher is like, hey, that's cool. If that's what gives you meaning, awesome. I'm here to help with that. If you want to learn some theory, like scales and how notes work together, we'll do that. But I'm not going to make you feel bad for not knowing how to do that or not wanting to do that. And if you do want to learn how to do that, I'm going to be here to help you through all that and enjoy that with you. As you discover things, it'll be fun. And discovery happens when you're ready for it. It doesn't happen when you're shamed into it or forced into it. And yeah, my guitar teacher is awesome, <laughs> is really what we're trying to say. This is very accurate. Like we have said before, so I've had two guitar teachers now because I had to change my schedule. My first guitar teacher, very knowledgeable, very smart, very music theory heavy. And not that he was trying to get me to do things I didn't want to do. He was helping me unlock some of those epiphany moments, but I don't believe he would have been a great teacher for you. And my current teacher is like, I know you don't want to do scales. I get that. Do them anyway. <laughs> it will help you. And I'm like begrudgingly saying, yeah, I know. I, on the other hand, do have an interest in music theory and how it all interweaves and unlocks together. And I would say that regardless of our learning styles, we're keeping pretty much a pace. Yeah. And I think, again, the thing I see with our teachers is that empathy for where we are and being willing to accept where we are. Like, neither of our teachers are asking us to take great pleasure in learning how to do scales. They're saying, yeah, it's kind of annoying. Yeah, it's sometimes kind of hard. Yeah, it's sometimes not terribly immediately rewarding. Understand it, but the practice will help you. Just trust us on this. We know that you will find value in this later. Right. And you know what? My teacher has more than earned my trust because I have actually started to appreciate where those scales actually appear in songs and how they can be used to make riffs and improvisation and solos and things like that. And I found value in that. Lo and behold, turns out my teacher knew what he was talking about. I mean, I always knew he did, but <laughs> it was just further proof. Well, let's steer it back to the conversation at hand, and then we'll probably touch in a little bit more on teaching styles at the end. Yeah. I'd say that this chapter starts having some more of that true fairy magic that we've kind of sort of been missing. I mean, the shade was the first big fairy magic rather than it just being like, come to my pool and in my pool. Yeah, there's definitely some health code violations there. Yeah, much like in the pool at our HOA. We're not going to keep going on that discussion. But regardless to say, we did get an email that made it very clear that some sanitation problems happened. Anyway, 
We're not here to talk about that. We are here to talk about what I was going to get into. The pool that they are currently at is full of these luminous koi that go around and like show the shape of things without showing the details of things because they are giving off that almost glow-in-the-dark light, that almost like reflective moonlight. And while Kvothe spends a lot of this chapter very distracted, there is a lot of in-world lore shared. So specifically, this is the first time that we get the concepts of the name-knowers and the shapers. Now, when Kvothe initially hears about the people who knew the names of all things, he immediately thinks that, oh, and that gave them mastery over the thing. What a very human, very kind of U.S. perspective. I was going to say sort of colonialist or uh, it's very much an idea that you would find as part of the Enlightenment in Europe and Great Britain in the 16th through 19th centuries. This idea that if you understood the world around you, you could control it. I think that we haven't learned the lesson of moving past that as a country. It's larger than as a country, I would say, as an entire structure of thought. Fair enough. What I'm trying to get across is that colonialism predates the U.S., and we should have been able to look at that as a history lesson and not adopted those ideals. We did not, and we've doubled down on them as a general country, where I'd say that while it's not completely moved past in the rest of the world, it's at least recognized that it's not a good thing, where it's more people here being super dug in on it. What I notice in this is also sort of the split between science and engineering. Like you have some people who look at the world to observe the world and want to just understand it in its own right, because that in itself is an end. And then there's that impulse to then, once you understand the thing, now you can manipulate the thing, you can change the thing, you can create things with that. You can control the thing. Yeah. So that's where the shapers come in. They were proud dreamers who thought in terms of mastery. And you can see in them sort of the grand hubris of many a, a, an engineer, whether they're working at big tech or, you know, when you look at things like the Manhattan Project and Los Alamos, you know, all of these ideas of you know, we can create things and change things. We can make things better than they are now if we only understand them and control them. And, you know, Florian calls out that it's not like these shapers were inherently evil and that they only made bad things. They created the entirety of the Fey realm. But they did seek dominance over everything. Right. They grew too proud. Also, I know a few years ago, one of our patrons on Patreon mentioned to me that there were Florian sections that once we got to them, they were all full of poems. I don't know that I would call this poems. I, though, would say it's a lot of iambic pentameter. And rhyming. And rhyming. Lots of rhyming couplets. Very much rhyming couplets. But also, like, 
I gotta say it makes it a little annoying for me as a dyslexic person to try to read it in the right cadence. So I have highlighted a lot of the rhyming words. But yes, also, Quoth finishes some of the rhyming. Much to Florian's chagrin. Sometimes she's either dismissive or outright like, let me finish my story. Right. You missed the point. And a large part of it is that Quoth is often missing the point. Although in this, I kind of see this. Quoth is wanting to interact and he's wanting to test his understanding of things. That's how he learns. And Florian does not exhibit a great deal of patience for Quoth's inquisitive nature. And again, making clear that perhaps she isn't the ideal teacher for him. So the talk moves from it is the same moon in both of our worlds to Quoth mentioning that he knows of a story where a person stole the moon. And Florian confirms that this is an accurate portrayal, sort of. The moon was stolen and it caused a war. And it also makes me think that maybe the Fey realm is Jax's weird folding house. Maybe. Maybe it's an allegory for the folding house. Because I doubt that the folding house is meant to necessarily be literal. It would also mean that Jax is one of the shapers. That's what she seems to imply. That maybe he's the head shaper. They seem to have very similar entitled attitudes. I think one of the most instructive ways to see this different between the knowers and the shapers is that portion of the story where Jax meets the old hermit up on the mountain listening to the wind. And the hermit implies that knowing the name of the wind and understanding it is an end in its own right, that it is good and wonderful just to know the thing and to understand the thing. You don't have to do anything with that knowledge. Whereas Jax has a very perhaps overly pragmatic view of that. What good is it if you can't do anything with it? He doesn't view the wind as a part of the world to be known and understood and celebrated. It's only good insofar as you can make use of it. And I think it's a relational thing too. The knowers have this attitude that you know and understand the world around you so that you can live in better harmony with it because the world around you has intrinsic value. Whereas the shaper worldview is very much around this idea of things only have value insofar as they benefit you. And if they don't benefit you, change them so that they do. And so Quoth does get Florian to tell him the fave tale of the moon that was stolen. And it's more of an actual history lesson, again, with rhyming couplets. Also extremely high level. Yes. Not nearly as detailed, not nearly as much of a fable or a fairy story. Or a manling story for that matter. Right. And we get this exposition intertwined with sexy time, which, I mean, it's playful and it's cute. It's not overly lurid or anything. I like that it's not just about his lust, but I do think that she gets away with a lot by manipulating it. 
sex position is certainly a trope. And yeah, all the Florian sections have a lot of it. Yeah. And I kind of can't help but wonder if part of the reason that Florian maybe doesn't go into an in-depth history is because for her, this is stuff that she lived. Clearly, her attitude around all of this is one of sadness. You get the sense that she understands both the knowers and the shapers and the space between them. And she mourns that rift. One thing to note here is that she talks about the first and greatest of the shapers. And Quoth asks, what was his name? And she does not give it. She says, no calling of names here. Jax is Ajax is... Alaxel, Haliax, Lanray. <laughs> but we don't call him Haliax. We don't use the name of the seven. Right. He's behind the doors of stone, which, hey, that's the name of the third book. Probably. <laughs> but it's not just that he is behind the doors of stone. He is shut beyond the doors of stone. It's a prison. That's the implication. And so I think the other part here that really kind of sparked my imagination there are a thousand half-cracked doors that lead between my world and yours. And the thing is, meta-knowledge. We know that at one point during a panel at a Comic-Con of some sort or something that Nate Taylor was talking and kind of spilt some beans a while ago about how maybe there are lots of little doorways all over the place between the mortal realm and the fey realm. And then he quickly was like, eh, maybe I shouldn't say anything. Although, here's actually a really interesting way to think of that. So the Fey Realm is where the Shapers could treat the world as their living laboratory, where they could make it however they wanted without having to kowtow to reality. And in many ways, that kind of mirrors the storyteller's conscious mind and the way they construct the story. So, I mean... If we think of the world of the Four Corners, it itself is a fey realm constructed by the shaper that is Patrick Rothfuss. And every time you know we read a book that Pat has published, that's like walking through a door into this fey realm that Pat's created. And then it's also Every time something slips out at a panel or on a Twitch live stream or whatever, that's one of those little doors that gets cracked open and something gets out. So if you don't know who Nate Taylor is, he was the person that illustrated the Slow Regard of Silent Things. He and Pat also worked on some Not for Children picture books. Seriously, Not for Children. Didn't he also do the illustrated edition of Name of the Wind? No. No, that was a different person. Okay. But he's working on the comic adaptation of The Boy Who Stole the Moon. Not sure when that's going to come out. I want it to come out as soon as possible, but creative types and such. And then I believe he's doing work on the short novella of The Lightning Tree, which is not called The Lightning Tree. I don't remember what it's called anymore. Want me to look that up? I mean... You very easily could. You have internet access in your lap. All right, hang on a sec. While you were looking it up, it's also interesting to note that 
Valorian says, why do you assume that there aren't a whole bunch of cracks between our worlds? Why do you assume that there aren't a whole bunch of fan creatures and denizens of our realm in your realm? And we do know that, of course, there are. We have suspicions about Elodin, but we know for certain, fast. We also know about the scrailing, the narrow road between desires. Thank you. So yeah, there are certainly fey who walk among us and often in various disguises, some humble, some proud, <laughs> and everything in between. But they're kept at bay by the old superstitions. Although it's interesting that things like copper knives as opposed to iron knives are mentioned here. And I'm wondering if that has something to do with the copper that lines the special cells in the rookery. Wouldn't surprise me. So it's another hint that copper has strange properties. So as their conversation continues, Valorian hints at a night with no moon being quite dangerous for mortals, especially in the Fey Realm. And she abandons him to the darkness where he steps forward into nothing. There is nothing underneath his feet in the pool. And he sinks under the water. He sputters. And she rescues him and gives him the warning. I do this so you cannot help but hear. A wise man views a moonless night with fear. And there are a couple things that she hints at behind this. So one, there are all of these cracked doors to the Fey Realm that you might wander into without realizing it, which you're not going to be able to find your way back. You'll be lost. And I think the other thing is that you can start to see things by the light of the stars oftentimes. And that's just enough sometimes to let you make out the shapes of things, but not the crucial details that help you tell what they really are. This is how you can fall into sinkholes and caverns and crevasses and end up getting lost in the wilderness. Even if you have a flashlight, you're oftentimes missing the critical context and shape of things and the details that can tell you the difference between a flat road and one that's got a big dip in it. In this way, the shapers can miss some things that the knowers don't. Yeah, the shapers have kind of a Silicon Valley mindset. They move fast and break things and they don't particularly care about what they break so long as they control it. We do have our second little chapter, which is called Lessons, which takes up less than eh, maybe just a little bit more than a page. Florian took both dayward, which is just such an interesting way of passing time, to a piece of forest even older and grander than the one that surrounded her twilight glade. They played in all sorts of ways. They went on trips and hikes. This is a continuance from where she had taken him originally. It's no longer just seduction. There has to be more than that. This is exploration. And, you know, here's where Kvothe tries his hand at teaching Felurian tack, only to discover that not only does she already know how to play, she's way better than even Brayden was. And I'm wondering, how does she know how to play tack? There is the reference to Brayden. There is the thought that he is one of the seven, and specifically which of the seven that he is. And it makes me wonder if 
Tack is not a game of the mortal world because it's never mentioned anywhere else. Like nobody else plays Tack. Only Braden does. Or shall we say Cinder? Because there's some pretty heavy hints. Right. And I'm wondering who taught who. And this is where we get back into that whole teaching thing. Quoth starts off claiming that he learned some of the Fey Realm's language. And then he backtracks. And he says, well, turns out I was really bad at it. And then it turns out that Florian was really impatient with me. And again, like, this really underscores just how difficult it is to teach a language. Um, it requires patience and understanding on the part of the teacher and the learner. And neither Quoth nor Florian are renowned for their patience. And then Florian taught me several fan songs, but they slip out of his mind all too easily. And when I try to play them on my lute, the strings felt strange beneath my fingers, making me fumble and stutter as if I were some country boy who'd never held a lute before. He says he learned the lyrics by rote without the least inkling of what the words might mean. And honestly, I think that that is kind of how we've both started learning guitar or other music things is learning it by rote, learning the patterns that are inherent in one thing and not the zoomed out version of how things work together. And I think that's one way of starting to learn. If given enough time, you start to discover the connections between things on your own. And I think that in some cases, not in all cases, but in some cases, it's better to learn those things because you've discovered them than to be told them and have to discover how they work together and then go back and kind of epiphany moment the things that you were already told. Though that might also cement things. Who knows? He says that he managed to make it out with a few phrases and a great dollop of humility, which is, I think, the first time that we've ever heard Quoth actually admit to being bad at something and actually have some humility about it. Or he's lying because we don't know Quoth to be humble or have humility. I don't know. It's a weird thing to lie about. But it's also like, is he starting to have some self-awareness? I think at least a little bit. You know, this whole experience for him has been one of really challenging a lot of his assumptions. And this, I think, is also one of those rare instances of Quoth having to do something that he's bad at. You know, one of the great challenges of growing up and being told that you're gifted is that you start to believe that things should come easy to you because you're used to things coming easy to you. So everything should come easy to you. And when things aren't easy for you, it can be a real blow to your ego. And it also can make it very hard to see the value in the thing that is hard for you when there are so many things that are easy for you. Like for me growing up, there was a period where reading was not easy for me. Writing was not easy for me. I eventually got very good at it. But at a certain point, once I got used to the idea that I was good at it, kind of expected that I'd be good at everything. And it was very tough for me to deal with subjects that didn't immediately make sense to me. Math. Math, especially. 
anything that relied on complex equations or even just basic arithmetic was always a challenge for me. And, you know, it made it difficult for me to persevere through those. And it also made it difficult when I started getting into advanced studies in college when something wasn't immediately easy for me, I would do up until it ceased to be easy. And that would be good enough to get a passing grade. But I didn't have the discipline or perseverance to really knuckle down a lot of times. And, you know, it also showed up in how I approached things like athletics. These were things that I was not immediately good at. And, you know, I was always kind of a clumsy kid and kind of awkwardly sized. So that made it difficult for me to want to persevere at doing things with my body, you know, and that was also a thing, you know, and I could have been more dedicated in that, certainly, but that just wasn't where my head was at. So I can empathize with where Kvothe is coming from here. The last half a page that we're going to talk about, Kvothe is still very curious and still asking lots and lots of questions while Florian's kind of ignoring him and working on the thing she wants to do, which is finishing that shade that she started making for him. And Kvothe is just like, but how are you doing this? I don't understand. Please explain it to me, please now. And in the same way that, I know I keep bringing this back to guitar, but when I stop to think about what I'm doing, I fork it up. When I think too hard about what the next chord change is, I don't do it right. Or if I think too hard about the rhythm or the stress of which notes need to be hit harder or whatnot, I do it wrong. I forget to change between the verse and the chorus, or I make a mistake on what comes next. But if I just let it be flow state, I do better after the initial learning period. And Florian at one point just says, hey, could you hand me that thing, that little bit of moonbeam over there? And he reaches to grab it and it's corporeal for a bit. And then he thinks about it and then it's gone. And his hand just goes through it. And Florian kind of smirks a little bit, doesn't look up, but says, so many thoughts, McVoth. You know too much to be happy. And in his head, the reply is, that sounded uncomfortably close to something that Elodin would have said, and I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, I think there is some wisdom here. I think that knowing that Kvothe has is with the quotation mark. He is very certain about the world around him in ways that maybe aren't justified. And because of all of his assumptions, he doesn't really have room for discovery. And so it oftentimes blinds him to seeing the world as it actually is, because he's so caught up in how he believes the world to be. We'll touch on that more in seven words. <laughs> At the end of the chapter, Florian just does what she does and grabs the moonbeam herself and starts weaving it into the shade. I'm going to mention this now because it's what I think everybody's been waiting for within the Florian and the Fae section. Our next chapter is the Cathay. One of my favorite sections. Same. So with that, it is your turn for Fernemos of the episode. Do you think there is one? Nope. We're still in Kvothe and Florian land, so no. 
<laughs> I mean, to a point, Florian is, if we're going to pick one of them, but... Only up to a point. Yeah, that's good enough. Okay, bye-bye. So with that, it's time to talk about our thing of the week, and it is my turn. So as you are probably aware, if you've been paying attention to anything online at all or in the news, right now the Writers Guild of America and the Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, or SAG-AFTRA. Right now, meaning end of July 2023. They are currently on strike against the Association of Motion Pictures and Television Producers, or the AMPTP, over a variety of concerns. Chief among them are pay structures around residuals for streaming shows and use of artificial intelligence for script creation and performance replacement. thing to remember is that while there are a few big names in both the writing and acting communities who make lots of money for their work, the vast majority of people who are working as writers and actors aren't able to make a living wage by doing their trade. Like I saw something about there being a requirement for them to get paid at least 29,000 in a year in order to qualify for their benefits through their unions. And the percentage of people who don't make that is ridiculously high. And there are a lot of reasons surrounding this. One, we've seen that over the past 10 to 15 years, the season for the average show has gone down from 25 episodes per season all the way down to anywhere from 8 to 12. That means there's less work for writers on that, and there's also less work for actors on that. Fewer hours of production means, you know, at an hourly pay rate, less money. and that makes it hard for people to actually get progress in their careers and they spend a lot of time unemployed. Not only that, but the residuals that they are getting from things like streaming services, like shows on streaming services, popular shows on streaming services are like less than a hundred bucks per check that they get. I don't know how often they get residual checks, but it's probably not very often. Typically, residual checks are once a month, and they are not enough to live off of for most people. In the era that most of us grew up in, in the 80s and 90s. That I'm, most of us grew up in? I'm making some assumptions here. <laughs> so if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, you know, people who worked in television would make a fair amount of money off of things like syndication, for instance. And you had things like the Nielsen ratings, which actually provided a solid metric for how popular a show was. And that was used to then build up an advertising rate. And that advertising rate is what allowed people to make money off of residuals. In the streaming era, there isn't really a strong correlation between it shows popularity and subscription growth. And since subscription numbers are the only real metrics that actually translate to dollars, the studios have not chosen to work out a way to make sure that that money then makes its way to performers. Which is interesting because YouTube can do it. Right. Part of the reason that YouTube is able to do that is because it does use advertising as a large portion of its revenue model. What I will say, though, 
is that I'm not talking about ad revenue. I'm talking that channels that are watched by YouTube premium subscribers make more money per view from a premium subscriber than they do from AdSense. My watch history is more valuable than someone who doesn't pay for YouTube. To the creators, not necessarily to YouTube, they might actually, based on the sheer amount that I am watching, be losing some money. Because I'm also grandfathered in and have been doing this for a very long period of time and they're finally going to raise my subscription rate. Not very much, but they are. And hopefully what that means is that they'll still continue to pay the creators of the things I've been watching a decent rate per view from me. I don't know. It's all kind of obscured. And that's also one of the other things that is at issue in the strike, which is that streaming numbers are kept hidden from the people creating content. So they don't have any way to measure how successful they are. They don't have any way to really determine if they should be able to plan for long-term growth for their series or if it's a one and done thing. They really don't know. And that makes it really difficult to make solid plans. I mean, uncertainty seldom makes for better creative decisions. It makes it hard to plan and it makes it very difficult to really be able to commit to something, to invest. And you know, you can go follow the WGA West and WGA East and SAG AFTRA social handles, and you will find an extensive list of all of the things in the entertainment industry that right now prevent them from making a living at doing this thing that provides value to us. And just so that you're aware, authors like Neil Gaiman have had to come out and say, this is not all things that are written down. This is specifically writing for TV and streaming services and movies that we're having these discussions about within our union, trying to get a better deal for our workers, for our members. They're not even calling for you to boycott the streaming services, right? They're not asking you to stop watching the shows that have been created. In fact, actually, if you continue watching the things that have been created by really talented workers, it shows that there's a demand for it. Don't watch things that are created that you know are created by AI-generated content without any artistry behind it. Or worse yet, don't do any consumption of media that you know is plagiarized, stolen, you know, cobbled together from machines learning how other people have made things and then just stealing it and then like mashing it together and hoping that it, you know, poops out something decent. Make sure that you're not just throwing out all of your media consumption trying to pretend that you're having solidarity or trying to claim that you have solidarity with the writers and the actors, because that's not doing any favors. It's just showing the streaming services that they don't need to make content that's good. And then also don't stop consuming things like books, because that has absolutely nothing to do with, like, even if it's a writer that is in the TV Writers Guild, don't stop consuming their other works, trying to show that you have solidarity, because that's not actually helpful. 
really the best way right now for those of us on the sidelines to join in the fight is by donating to the Entertainment Community Fund. We'll be including a link for that in the description to this episode. So by all means, make a donation if you have it in you. And you know, if you're thinking about how you share things and how you promote things, promote other things other than things that are being struck right now. So right now we are not going to be calling out specific TV series or movies, even though we love these things and mm-hmm. we are continuing to watch them. But you don't have to be the one promoting that, doing the promotional work, which ordinarily would be done by writers and actors during the promotional period for their works. Also, one thing that you can stop doing safely that will actually show solidarity is don't watch all of the autocomplete wired interviews or all the press junkets, all the things that were taped right before the strike was announced. Don't consume all of the promotional materials that are essentially using the actor's pre-recorded stuff to promote things that the studio is making money off of that they're not passing along to the people who actually made them. It's important to understand here, we stand in solidarity with the writers and actors on this because as much as we love a special effects spectacle, there is no greater special effect than an actor interpreting a writer's words into something special. There's a reason why we close each episode by thanking the creators who create the worlds that we love exploring. You know, that's going to always be true. We're always going to stand with the creatives on this one. The CEOs of the studios don't need us to love them. They don't need us to care about them. They don't need our money. It's the people who actually do the work, who put their time, their effort, their creativity into it that really are the ones that are actually giving us value as a society. I'd also say support small creators that have carved out exceptions with SAG-AFTRA. A24 is one of them. I know, like... Critical Role right now is in a weird spot. They're still hiring people to play in the games and in the live streams that are union members. And I'm not sure how they've worked with the guilds to try to make sure that they're not like crossing picket lines. But I don't believe that they would purposefully do such things. But they're in a weird gray area. But like, drop out. I know that Sam is a... SAG member, and so is Brennan. I also know that they have content filmed for the next number of months, but they're also in a weird spot of trying not to like overly promote it, but they may be able to carve out an exception. There's just things that we're not going to help happen by being armchair quarterbacks. We need to let them work out what they're going to work out and be patient. They will let us know when they know. They don't know. We don't know. In the meantime, like I say, just fundamentally be kind. So that, let's go ahead and move to our seven words. You have seven words from the book this time. And I was spoiled for choice. I had quite a few options. I noticed that. So I'm just going to go through some of the things that I have. One, we have, look, there hangs a cloud as well. Yay for Florian being sarcastic. Also, foolish sweet, there is only one moon. Yep. And then, no, you are mindful of my breasts. (laughs) And then, 
that was the end of it all. And we've got, they had a deep knowing of things. They argued against mastery of this sort. And this is true of any fae. And then we have the one that I actually chose, which I alluded to earlier. You know too much to be happy. One of the things that I have come to understand, like there's a reason why people say ignorance is bliss. And there's a reason why the happiest people you know aren't necessarily the ones who have the highest IQs or the most diplomas. Sometimes knowing things prevents you from being happy. Sometimes it prevents you from appreciating the world as you experience it. And I think sometimes you get so caught up in what you know or what you think you know that you're blind to reality. It can be very easy to become comfortable in your knowledge. And that comfort does not generate happiness. I'd also say... For those of us who are terminally online and aware of all the atrocities or some of the atrocities or just a mere handful, like a small percentage of the atrocities, having knowledge of all the things that are going bad or badly, whatever, it definitely can affect you, especially when you are powerless to change it or feel powerless to change it. And I think there is a lot of wisdom in knowing that being oversaturated in information can make one miserable. I think it can lead you to decision paralysis or information paralysis, where when you start feeling like everything is determined and all of your choices are constrained, making a choice that involves actually doing something becomes very hard. And so you default to inertia and you start to believe that you are far more constrained than you are. Also, having a knowledge of how things work can sometimes limit you from trying or going down a path that you think you know the end to. I've also found that when you are trying to institute change in an organization, one of the most dispiriting things is to be told, we already tried that and it didn't work. And, you know, I've found myself on both sides of that. And it can be really frustrating. And I get it. And so the the challenge is when you are in the position of someone proposing something that you've already tried, we've already tried that may not be the best response. And I say this as someone who has said it more than he would like. That usually just means we need to think of another way to approach this. Not that the problem isn't worth solving. It's just that we need to find a different solution from the ones we've already tried. To go back to some of the more adorable and or cute seven words that I found. Why have you brought me an owl when I desired a man? Is the end of that sentence, but I think it's, I think it's cute. Also, even the fish delight in kissing you. To which Quoth responds, I think they must like the taste of salt on my skin. And Florian is like, I'm trying to be cute. <laughs> Mayhap they like the taste of owl. You keep trying to figure out the hows and the whys. Stop that. Just accept what is. And I think that that's also tied into what you were talking about. 
knowing too much to be happy, knowing too much and seeking too much and trying to learn too much and trying to get to the hows and the whys rather than accepting what is for what it is and being happy with the information you have. I mean, has anyone ever enjoyed a hot dog more after seeing how it's made? No, no. Exactly. No. (laughs) Anyway, you had seven words from life. So what'd you pick? All right. So as of the recording, yesterday was my birthday. And so my seven words are, I had a perfectly low key birthday yesterday. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm glad that we could do that together. So what we did yesterday to celebrate my birthday was we had coffee and a little extra kind of baked good treat with our breakfast and went on an explore to one of our favorite music shops that has a lot, a lot of vinyl. So we picked up a few records and came back home, got ourselves some pizza, had a little bit of beer and dairy-free ice cream, watched some nerdy shirt on TV, and then we came into the cat-free space and listened to some of our new records. It was quite pleasant. And Will got me glow-in-the-dark dice for my birthday with little dragons all over it. What can I say? I know what my partner wants. Daw. We're going to make our audience vomit. Too bad. Too late. (laughs) Anyway, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. And thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 104 and 105 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of agency versus determinism. Yay, we finally got to the cafe! Yeah, we're going to have a lot to talk about here. Yeah. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough, You may have noticed that I'm not really active on Twitter. I wonder why that is. Um, I'm going to try to get back into posting on Instagram and catching up. It's been rattling around in my head. I want to do it. We'll see if I do do it. Good luck. Thank you. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. Side note, if you would actually like to converse with us at all, check out our Discord. Link in the description. Also, hit us up on Patreon. Eventually, I will actually check it. I currently check it about once every two weeks because stuff happened in life and I'm really bad at paying attention to things that don't have a lot of, like, pinging at me. And unfortunately, there's been such low traffic historically that I kind of just haven't paid as much attention to that as I would like. But if it gets busier, hint, hint. Even if you don't give us anything, that's fine. I don't that's not what it's about. It's more about the community. Then I'll be there. So patreon.com slash waystonepod. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! You are a butt. I'm glad you think so. You are a cheeky, cheeky butt.